Today's podcast is brought to you by diggers, because in a world covered by endless water, people are forced to eke out a living on the small patches of land that remain above the sea. The people of this world rely on ancient technology driven by quantum refractors, a powerful energy source. These refractors lie in ancient ruins underground and in the sea, and are sought out by explorers called diggers. These brave explorers are the sole source of refractor energy, which has become a cornerstone of the emerging civilizations. All this and more in 1997's Mega Man Legends, on today's episode of What Am I Podcasting For? In about an hour, we'll be arriving at our destination, Catalogs Island. Double check your equipment readings and make sure everything's in working order. I swear the treasure will be ours or my name's not Bond. Let's do it! Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Carlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the hundred plus games in between as I can manage. And today, we're finally starting the third sub-series in the Mega Man franchise. We're starting Legends. Mega Man Legends is a PlayStation 1 game that was later ported over to PC and PlayStation Portable, and also the N64 as Mega Man 64 and the only Mega Man game that would appear on the N64. Mega Man Legends is not an evolution from Mega Man and Mega Man X. Like, when we jump to X, the core basics of what Mega Man was remained. Jump and shoot man 2D platformer. Throw that out the window. Legends is a 3D action adventure that you could probably closest, like, compare to something like, I don't know, The Legend of Zelda? Two things, before you start thinking that this might just be, like, an Ocarina of Time clone. First off, this game actually predates Ocarina of Time's Japanese release date by about a year, which means that it has not had the advantage of seeing how other games would do this successfully. This was actually kind of pioneering 3D action-adventure games, which is going to come with some, some growing pains, let's say that. But also, this game does do a bunch of things that are not, like, even though it is simplest to describe it as kind of Zelda-ish, don't get too attached to what that means formulaically, because this game was kind of just trying a whole lot of things. One thing that it tried, for instance, is that this game has a very distinct visual style. It is very polygonal, I mean, it is early 3D, but rather than trying to do like a whole ton of super detailed textures all over everything and try to jump on the, oh, 3D means we can do realistic bandwagon. No, early 3D did not mean they could do realistic and attempts to do that look ridiculously bad today. I'm sorry. On the other hand, choosing to stylize it with bright colors, simple shapes, using like anime design faces, turns out that actually ages a lot better. I'm not going to say Mega Man Legends looks amazing, it is still limited by being a PlayStation 1 game that is not using any pre-rendered graphics. But also, I have seen so much worse come out of this era. Legends really feels like a Saturday morning cartoon, and we'll, we'll really get into some of the ways that it does as we go later. Part of how it accomplishes that was voice acting. Honestly, the English voice acting for this game is better than 8's was, that's for sure. I mean, that's not hard. And I'm not going to say, like, it's amazing. But actually, some of the voice actors in this game are kind of delivering. We do have a full story in this game, and cutscenes and everything. This is not a traditional Mega Man game. We don't have a stage select. We are playing through a story. Oh, and speaking of cutscenes, this game has a cutscene skip. This game in 1997 lets you press start to just immediately skip to the end of a cutscene and resume the action. There are games today that still do not understand how goddamn valuable that is, and how much I do not care that you'll never take Kyrie's heart. I'm done watching that cutscene, okay? A lot of the things, though, that make this game unique in playstyle and all the different systems in it and stuff, we're gonna have to talk about as they come up in the game, because we got a lot to talk about as we go through this journey. So let's start at the beginning. After we listen to a kind of iconic opening monologue that sets the stage for the world, we open up on our protagonist of this game, Mega Man Vomit. Basically Mega Man, more humanly proportioned though, and he doesn't wear a helmet, at least not immediately, you can get one it later into the game. Very boyish, honestly very cute. Vaughn's adorable. I'm just gonna get that out there. I love him. But we get an opening scene that really just sets the tone for this entire game, which is him deep inside some unknown runes out in the middle of the ocean, picking up a giant glowing crystal and 
setting off a whole series of traps that he has to run from. After a fancy action cut, we jump into the gameplay as we continue the escape. We're not timed or anything. Our spotter, Roll Casket, is going to be providing us instructions over the intercom as we go through this area, basically instructing us on how this game controls and who, boy. Yeah, this game controls weird. Again, keep in mind that this predated Ocarina of Time by a year. People were still figuring out what 3D controls had to be, and having a second joystick, hell, having joysticks at all, was not standard on PlayStation controllers at this time. It wouldn't be later until the actual DualShock controllers came in and there were joysticks and a D-pad and buttons. And yet this was a game with a controllable 3D camera. They had to come up with the best answer they could, which was that you have sort of tank controls. Forward is forward. Left turns you and the camera to face to the left. Right turns you and the camera to face to the right. You can also strafe left or right by using L1 or R1. If you use these in tandem, you can actually start strafing around and circling around enemies, but they don't really line up in a perfect, like, rotation the way you'd like them to for strafing around something. There isn't really any smart lock-on. I mean, there is a lock-on button for R2, which allows you to really easily target enemies that are in the air and stuff by just automatically facing them, but also... That only works so well, and most importantly, you can't move while you're locked on, which provides an interesting limitation into the system. The point is, is if you are used to modern 3D games at all, this game's going to take some getting used to on the control front. It's definitely, like, clunky and rough in spots. But anyway, we get some instruction on some basics, like, look, there's treasure chests, there's something resembling puzzles, almost, where we have to blow something up in order to drop a gate. And there's a boss fight with a large reaver bot. The reaver bots are the name for mysterious robots that are just existing in these strange underground rooms. That They don't really come, like, surface side or anything. They don't threaten the world. They just hang around in these rooms and fight off intruders. The boss doesn't really do much. It just, like, walks up to you and swings your arm, and you're just supposed to evade it. It chases us up to the surface, where we find out that we're just on a, like, tower in the middle of the ocean. With nowhere to go, Mega Man jumps off and lands on our personal airship, the Flutter, which is being piloted by Roll. Roll in this game, not a robot, but actually a human. She is a brilliant mechanic and pilot. She is also Mega Man's assistant on his explorations. She kind of handles, like, radio and, like, generally scanning the area around him and stuff. The crew of the Flutter is consisted of Mega Man Valnut, Roll Casket, her grandfather Barrel Casket, who doesn't really do too much, and the last member of the crew is Data the Robot. And by robot, I mean Monkey Robot. He seriously looks like he belongs in Super Monkey Ball. Apparently, Mega Man can understand him while everybody else just hears him as a monkey. Data's actually really neat because he is not just a save point, but also perpetually keeps track of what we are doing. And if we ever need a hint as to what to do next, he can tell us, which, again, things that games have still yet to learn years later, it helps to have a reminder for players because they might put your game down for a week and come back and be like, okay, what was I doing? Anyway, that's our crew. Everything's going great. We just made out with a treasure, except that the flutter is um, sputtering and not in great shape, and Roll is barely able to pilot it long enough to crash land on Catalox Island, which will serve as the main hub of, well, actually the entire rest of the game. Catalox is a pretty picturesque island. It has one small town on it. There isn't even, like, really skyscrapers or anything, but it does have, like, its own TV station, hospital. Like, it's fully featured as a town. But long story short, they're all like, hey, what are you doing crash landing on our island? Beryl goes to go talk to the mayor to get us entry into the city, and we have to pass some time. We end up picking up a small quest to go rescue the husband of the junk shop owner. And where we have to go rescue him from is a ruins that spans underneath the island. There's a few different entrances to these ruins throughout the game, but these ruins sort of act as like, if you just want to go diving into the game and explore and try to find stuff in general, the runes are pretty much always open to you. How much they are open will change as you progress through the game and get access to specific certain upgrades, but there is always the option to just ignore what you're supposed to be doing at the moment and go exploring, which is kind of cool, actually. 
We bring him back. We open up the junk shop. Fun part, actually. The husband and wife ask us what our name is, and the option is either Mega Man or Hippopotamus. And if we say that our name is Hippopotamus, they actually believe us and we're Hippopotamus the rest of the game, or at least to this couple. Even in the ending, they will call us Hippopotamus. It's kind of great. They also, as thanks, give Roll access to an old busted-up car, which she's like, hey, I can get this running again, and I can use it to support you as we explore the island. This opens up our various upgrade systems. So, this game isn't quite an RPG in that we don't have an experience system. However, when we do shoot down enemies in this game, they will drop crystals onto the ground, which are zenny. They are money. And you can almost think of it as experience points, because all of your upgrades in this game pretty much have to be bought. There's some exceptions where you can straight up find certain things, but for the most part, if you want to upgrade your life, go buy it. If you want to upgrade your energy canteen, which is basically spare life, like an E-tank, go buy it. If you want to upgrade your armor, go buy better armor. Do you want to upgrade your basic buster? There's a few different ways to get buster parts, like finding them in the ruins, but also you can buy some of them off of the junk shop. That's a whole system, by the way. Instead of having just your basic pea shooter for the entire game, you have two, or later three, slots in which you can equip buster parts, which increase things like the power of shots, how far they will go, how fast you can fire, and how many bullets you can have active at a time. They never really add special effects to your buster, so it remains a basic weapon, but you can absolutely complete this entire game just using the buster, barring like one spot where you specifically need to use a tool that we'll get later. However, the junk shop isn't the only place to spend money. We can also go talk to Roll at the support car anytime we want. Roll has basically two functions. The first is item development. If we bring her key items that we found in the ruins or from side quests around town, sometimes it won't matter until we have combinations of items, she'll be able to tinker them up and create items for us, new buster parts or new special weapons. Now, the special weapon system in this game is a bit of a disappointment, and I'm not actually going to spend a whole lot of time talking about it, because of that, even though this is a Mega Man game. The special weapon system is that you can take one special weapon with you at any given time. You can't switch them on the fly. You have to go back to the support car, which is basically like an out-of-stage save point in order to switch up your weapons. Most of them really aren't that spectacular. They don't do all that much that's really all that interesting. There's a couple fun ones you can get later in the game. There's the vacuum arm, for easily picking up any, like, loose zenny that enemies drop, because honestly picking it up manually can be a pain in the neck. There's the shield arm, which can protect you. There's, like, a Gatling gun or, like, the ability to lay mines. But most of them are a pretty standard arsenal that you'd expect in, like, a third-person action game. It's really kind of disappointing. On the flip side, you can pay to have roll upgrade your weapons, and most of them can actually become pretty powerful if you are willing to make the investment. But yeah, now we have all of our basic systems in place. And just as we're thinking, well, that means we should go start exploring the island and we should go get our passes to go explore the entire town, it's time to meet the Bonds. <laughs> The Bonds are a trio of siblings who are pirates. They consist of Bon Bon, who is basically Robot Baby, Tron Bon, the older sister who is, like, a brilliant mechanic. Honestly, Sundari as hell. She's, she's actually kind of sweet, and she kind of has, like, a motherly instinct towards her, like, created servants, the Servbots, which are legitimately just Lego people. <laughs> but she's very, very quick to get defensive and, like, shake things off. She's very popular, actually, because she's just a lot of fun as a character. And the Bonds in general are a lot of fun. My actual favorite member of the Bonds might be Teasel, though, the older brother and kind of the leader of the operations. He is the sort of character who can go from just, like, very calmly sipping tea one moment to a swearing vengeance on that blowboy, complete with voice cracking and everything and full-on hamming it up, and then just the next scene after you defeat him in a fight, 
Oh, well, I guess I've lost. Now what do I do? Like, oh, <laughs> Teasel's amazing. This is a man who does not have small emotions. He is always over the top, and I love it. But our introduction and first meeting with Tron Bond is literally saving her from a dog chasing her up a lamp pole, which is... That's sort of the tone that the Bonds take. They're Team Rocket. They're not really antagonists. They are goofballs who are rivals. A fun fact about this dog, by the way. Legends has a morality system in it. There's a few things in the game that you can do that will benefit you as Mega Man, or are potentially just really funny, that are kind of bad things to do. And if you do a bunch of them, your armor will start going black and people in town will actually have like a worse reaction to you and tell you to go away and stuff. I don't think it actually really affects anything. But the point that I'm bringing this up is that you can solve Tron's dog at the bottom of the lamppost problem by either talking to the dog and telling it to leave, or if you're playing the Japanese version, just straight up going up to it and just footballing it. Anyway, Tron gets really embarrassed that we save her, we leave, and she proceeds to get revenge for her embarrassment by attacking the city. Honestly fair. We learn that the pirates are supposedly after a treasure that's supposed to be somewhere under catalogs. And unfortunately, this treasure is kept behind what are called the subgates, which are essentially locked off ruins that are considered so dangerous that the city mayor's like, no, listen, I have the key. You can't go in there. I'm only going to trust very specific people to be able to go in there because it's too dangerous. So now we have to boss rush our way through the bonds. We haven't even really had like a gameplay stage other than toying around a bit in the underground. And we have not one, not two, but four total boss battles. First, we have to eliminate the Servbot robots. They're just these tanks that roll around the main part of the city. The game tells us they have a key to the gate towards City Hall that they've stolen and we have to go get it back. It is actually only in one of them, and you can see them toss the key between each other every once in a while, so you just need to track down the right one and finish off that one in order to finish this fight. Boss 2, the servbots run to Mistron, and she's got a giant spider bot that has guns on its legs. Kind of a scary boss, but honestly, if you just get in really close and drop the one weapon that Roll has given us, which is landmines. If you just drop them right on the thing's feet, it just explodes. Boss 3, we run up to the city hall part of town. The third boss fight involves taking down basically all the various robots that are attacking the area, but the bulldozer bots on the ground, if we destroy them, there's like carrier robots flying around that will bring in reinforcements. Those are the ones we have to actually destroy. Actually, I want to mention at this point, really interesting thing that happens during the entire pirate assault. Anything that the bonds blow up during this section stays blown up. Which is really rude the first time around, because you're probably still getting used to the controls and probably a lot's going to get blown up. And that's a problem, because one of the side quests after this is gathering up money to pay for the repairs to the town. Certain side quests for really good stuff later in the game require you to have certain locations available. I find this fascinating that this is an actual mechanism. Like, it's really cool, but it's also really punishing for something to have it so early in the game that you can end up screwing yourself up into, like, tons of extra grinding later on down the line. Anyway, after those carriers, we still do have a fourth boss fight with Bon Bon, who is just in a flying robot. It's really easy. If you keep running under him, he doesn't really have a good way to, like, attack you. All of his attacks are, like, in front of him, so it's, it's really not a problem. We save the city, but it turns out the Bonds have yet another scheme up their sleeves. If the mayor's not going to, like, be threatened into giving up the keys, then they're just going to dig their way down into the ruins by literally digging up the area around the subgate entrances. So we chase them out to the forest to fight Teasel's giant digger robot as a fifth boss. Turns out that plan was not exactly working because the entrance to the subgate is, like, a really really deep elevator, and they still haven't found the bottom of it. But we've decided to put a stop to them. This one's kind of interesting. You have to climb around on the outside of the dig, and then jump onto the back of the machine in order to, like, target its hatch when it opens. But again, if you get up there and just drop the landmines that Roll gave you onto it, it will go down in, like, no time at all. We get probably one of the best lines in the game. How much does he think it cost to build that in the first place? I love it. But having saved the city and seemingly scared off the pirates, we go back to visit the mayor and she's like, you know what, you guys have full reign of the city and we don't have the parts here to fix your airship, but maybe those parts exist in the underground somewhere. Barrels told me you're an excellent digger, he's an old friend of mine and I trust him, and you did just literally save the city. Here's the keys to the gates. Go nuts. 
But she also says the pirates were after a treasure that's supposedly sleeping under the island. But depending on who you ask historically around the island, scholars are torn between like either it's a great treasure that's under the island or it's something absolutely horrible that is a sealed catastrophe we don't want to mess with. The game tells us at this point that we can go wherever the hell we want and we can do all the gates. Realistically, you cannot just go to each of the gates. We have to do them in order. The one up in the north part that was just being dug up, the actual entrance is now suspended in the air because all the earth has been removed around it. There's no way for us to get to it. And another one is over in the island, and apparently the bonds blew up all the boats so that nobody else could get to the island. There's like one functional boat that isn't actually functional, it needs repairs, and we don't have a way to deal with that. Speaking of which, the owner of the boat shop is Dr. Wily. Like, not maniacal robot creator Dr. Wily, but literally his name is Wily and he looks exactly like Wily, just in like a green suit instead of a lab coat. Kind of a cool dude. Weird cameo, though. Anyway, that leaves us with one choice, which is the subgate in the southern forest, where we actually have to do an escort mission with Roll and the car in order to get her to bust down a large wooden wall in front of the subgate. Fun fact, by the way, <laughs> Roll does not bother to stop if you are in front of the car. Uh, she absolutely will run you over, which means Roll Casket is a very different role from the role in Battle and Chase who swerved to avoid hitting a puppy. This role would literally run over her best friend and be like, oops, sorry. But this is where we begin the proper dungeons of the game. Now, these dungeons aren't particularly gigantic in any sense. For the most part, they are more or less kind of linear, at least the first two feel that way. The basic idea is that we have to find three keys in them and take them to a specific room to get the refractor that it's kept in. This first one has like a couple puzzle bits to it. Like, we have to deliberately use crumbling floors to drop a treasure chest onto a conveyor belt and then roll it down to some crushers in order to open it up and get one of the keys. But it's it's a fairly simple area. It's definitely a bit of a step up in difficulty. If you didn't go to the junk shop and get some extra life and stuff, this place could actually be a little bit nasty. Something that is less obvious is that while we're in this dungeon, we need to find the spring set. There's nothing telling you in the game that this is here. Taking the spring set back to roll gets you the jump shoes, which allows you to jump about twice as high. If you don't find these, you can't finish the game, I'm pretty sure. Like, I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure the remaining dungeons can't be finished without finding this. So, yeah, kind of important. Anyway, we picked up a refractor in the subgate, but it's not nearly big enough to power the flutter. But it is good enough that we can use it as repair materials for that one boat at Dr. Wiley's boat shop. So that lets us get out to the lake dungeon. Except before we can get out there, the Bonds are like, hey, surprise, we have a whole fleet of submarines in this lake. And we have to basically fight to survive for a while, shooting down everything that tries to take us out, like torpedoes in the water and missiles in the air and stuff. And it's basically like this rail shooter sequence. And then eventually we get a boss fight with like a giant kind of lanky frog looking robot thing. Mostly you just kind of start circling around it and shooting down the various weapons on it. Then we finally get to do our second dungeon, the Jun Lake subgate. This place is troublesome. It's very straightforward in terms of design. There's very little in the way of stuff to actually explore in here. The reason that it's troublesome is just that the enemies are really nasty. There's one large room that is populated primarily by enemies that are literally invisible. They just show up from time to time. And there's another room where, like, gator robots dive out of the falls on either side of you. You really, really want to avoid them. This is, like, the one dungeon in the game where I don't fight things. I legitimately just jump past enemies. It's so much goddamn easier. We do have three keys to find. We also need to find an important item that is transformed into a weapon called the Grand Grenade, which we will need in order to blow open certain walls. Most importantly, a specific wall in the next dungeon. 
There's also an actually optional upgrade called the Jet Skates here, which allow you to basically like speed dash around areas. It's not like a responsive like tap button do a dash. It's more like the Zelda style Pegasus boots where you hold down the button for a second and then you start dashing, but it's still very useful to have it. At the end of the dungeon, once we pull off the reactor and we try to leave, we do get a boss fight that is a pain in the neck. The boss has an extremely simple pattern of just diving at us and then like jumping back to the center and creating a shockwave. If you screw up dodging him, however, his damage is pretty high after an already difficult dungeon full of dangerous enemies. By the way, this game has no save points in dungeons. You have to leave entirely if you want to save with data. But also, the only vulnerability point on this boss is his head and he is a tall hacker so it's just this really really slow and awkward fight i really dislike it once we take the refractor from this subgate, Roll's like, yeah, we can use this to fix the flutter. Even though we've repaired the flutter, it seems that we're invested in the mysteries of the island. So we take the flutter over to the suspended platform to enter the third subgate, and this is where the plot proper starts to kind of kick in. The dungeon itself is a pain in the neck. This game does have a, like, mini-map that you can use, but it only shows, like, a specific section at a time. I feel like I should talk a bit more about the dungeon design at this point. If you're expecting like full Zelda style like traps and everything, no, for the most part these are like corridors and like simple room designs and enemies placed in your way as obstacles. They're not particularly complex. This one's just tricky because it is actually a lot more freeform to explore than the previous dungeons. There's a lot of like multiple branching paths and stuff. Early into it, we do find the control room for the dungeon, but instead of just looking for three keys, we find the controls that apparently handle main gate access. However, Mega Man's reading it, and he's like, okay, this requires either direct access from Eden, or three prototype anthro unit ID cards? And at the time, the way he reads it makes it sound like he just doesn't know how to read. But once we find the card keys and we start heading back, there's a line that he just throws in while he's, like, finishing up the travel that he's just like, I have no idea how I was able to read that. There is a boss fight down here. It's basically three robot hellhounds that can breathe fire at us. As long as you strafe and keep moving, it's not actually that bad, despite being really outnumbered and the fact that it should be horrible. But we got the cards, so we activate the main gate and open it up. And the main gate is just a structure that was in an older part of Catalog City. It's been there basically since before people got there, and they've never been able to open it up. Well, now it's open. But rather than waiting for us and then just slipping in, the Bonds decide that, hey, we've served our purpose, we've opened up the main gate, and now we need to get shot out of the air. So it's our little tiny flutter against the Gesellschaft. God, I'm so sorry to anybody who knows how to actually pronounce that word. The Bond Mothership which is a big air warship type thing that is armed to the teeth, and we're going to have to, like, fly around it and gun down all of its different weapons. And even once we survive that, there's another boss fight that follows where Tron launches, like, a bird fighter plane thing. Literally like a transformer. It's kind of cool that we have to shoot down as it flies around and just, like, pelts us with fire and stuff before we actually, like, get shot down ourselves. And we get kind of a somber moment. The bird blows up and Roll and Mega Man are talking about it and they're like, so they ejected, right? I didn't see them do it. And it just kind of ends on the somber note of like, oh, hmm. And then walking around the flutter, I walked into Roll's room right afterwards and got yelled at for walking in on presumably her changing. Doesn't actually show anything other than Volnut's goofy face, but suffice to say that killed the mood <laughs> real quick. Anyway, this finally lets us go to the main gate. The main gate is the game's final dungeon. It's a pretty straightforward, like, spiral down into the earth. At the very bottom, we come across a series of gates, 
that tell us that, hey, we need some special keys in order to get to them. If we go back up and go exploring a little bit on a side area, we will find the controls that tell us, hey, the only way to open the end of the main gate is either, again, with permission from Eden, or with the three keys from the subsidies. The subsidies are currently inaccessible, but we flick a switch and it's like, okay, well, they have been risen to the surface and are now accessible again. You can explore more or less all of the main gate that matters when you first get here. All that's behind those doors is like a couple corridors, one buster part that's actually pretty good, and the final boss. But you can explore everything else down here. By the way, the dog bots that were the bosses in the previous dungeon, they're regular enemies down here, but at least we're only fighting one of them at a time. Down here, we find the parts to have Roll make the drill, which is the final major upgrade in the game. It is used to bust open certain walls in the underground and finally make it fully, completely accessible to us. It's absolutely terrible as a sub-weapon otherwise. The range on it is literally so short that when you defeat enemies with it, their explosions will hit you because you're that close to them. But at this point, we have to go find the subsidies. There are three subsidies that have popped up on the surface. They're like ominous black monoliths that take us down to a space that is technically underground, but it has like a fake starlit sky hanging above it, and it's basically what looks like an army base. Mega Man remarks that he thinks that like whatever those prototype anthro units were, they probably used to live here. And basically each of them is a battle test. Once you destroy every enemy in the area, a room opens up in them and you can go get a key from them. One of these does have a boss fight in it, a giant, like, reaver bot carrier. It regularly opens up a hatch on its back to spit out additional reaver bots to attack you. If you can get on top of them by using your special weapons to clear out the minor enemies and then just wail on the boss, it's not that bad. If, on the other hand, a whole ton of enemies get spawned, oh boy, it gets messy fast. To access one of the sections, we actually have to do something that I haven't mentioned up to this point, which is that we have to go through the ruins of the city through an entrance in the main gate. I should have mentioned this a while ago. This is one of the coolest things about this game. I mentioned early on that there was the ruins under the city and you could go explore it at any point. Well, the ruins actually connect to every single other dungeon in the game. You can travel straight from one to another one. Now, you need the different power-ups from the different dungeons in order to actually access each one, so you're not going to be able to like really sequence break from one dungeon into another. I think somebody may know a way. For once, I didn't actually go looking up a speedrun of this game before I recorded it. One path through the ruins from the main gate leads us into that cordoned off section of the old city, and there we find a warehouse where we find a giant robot with the bond symbol on it. Literally, the bonds are sitting around eating pizza and shelling out Mega Man. He's actually just excited to see them alive, which I think says so much about this particular Mega Man as a person. But anyway, Tron gets flustered and pissed off, and Teasel's all like, what the hell is Blue Boy doing here? And we get into a fight with the last of the Bond robots called Bruno, which is just like this big mech that has like guns on its knees and guns on its feet and guns on its hands and guns, guns, guns. It's actually really trivial. All you have to do is get behind it, and it can barely attack you. It's kind of silly. Teasel admits defeat, or at least fakes defeat, and then is like, yeah, and once he's gone down into the main gate, we'll just follow after him and grab the treasure. Duh. Which, honestly, is what we're going to do, because after we've finished up the three subsidies, then it's time to go down into the main gate and open the last door. This is where the plot really hits the fan. Mega Man realizes that inexplicably he knows this place. He doesn't know how, but he knows this place. The main gate finishes opening up, the very last gates within it, and out steps a robot man. This is Mega Man Juno. Yes, I just said Mega Man. There's two Mega Man. Mega Man Juno, who I'm just going to refer to as Juno from here on out, is fascinatingly designed, and I just want to talk about this for a moment. Like, obviously he is robotic. He has, like, literally detached arms that are hovering next to him and stuff. He's very obviously a robot, but the way he's designed with his color scheme and stuff, all of his design makes it look more like he is wearing, like, a Papple-style robe. The way that he talks is extremely calm and very, very polite. And you'll have to excuse me for not recognizing you, Mega Man Trigger. I'll come back to that statement. And all of that calm and the way that he starts talking about how that now that he's been awakened, his purpose is to see to it that the number of carbons, i.e. people, 
up on the surface have not exceeded some specification. He starts going on and on, and Volnut's a little bit confused as to what he's talking about. But he's doing all of this to this ominous organ in the background that is just straight up playing The Little Fugue by Bach. Not an original piece of music, but straight up a piece of classical music, which I love this choice. Like, it's so weird to hear classical music in a Mega Man game, but this game's connection to the rest of the series is supposed to be that this game takes place, like, a couple thousand years down the line. So having this robot awaken from an ancient sleep while classical music is playing, it just immediately tells you, like, everything has gone to hell and you have done something very wrong. Anyway, Juno basically tells us his plan, which I'll translate into simple terms. He's the overseer of Catalox Island. He's supposed to keep people from overpopulating the island because humanity left unchecked starts to multiply and grow dangerously and whatever. For whatever reason, he's been sleeping longer than he intended since the last check-in, and he's like, okay, okay, I got my job to do. I'm going to go contact Mother. She's going to wipe out everything on the island, and then we'll just start over, which, uh, Holy sh**. Suffice to say, Mega Man Volnut is not okay with this. Juno says, like, well, listen, obviously something's gone wrong. You've forgotten some stuff. Why don't you wait here? And then he catches Mega Man Volnut in a trap, and Juno wanders off to go commit genocide. Fortunately, the Bonds were following us. They disabled the trap for us, and they're like, yeah, I don't, we don't know what's going on. We don't like this dude. You're probably the only person who can fight him. We'll be back here. And with that, we head into the last stretch of the dungeon, and right before the final boss door, we find Data the Monkey. Despite the fact that we're so far down that Roll has lost contact with us at this point, and you can actually ask Data, other than just what should I be doing, there's some questions of just like, what what's going on? Who am I? The responses don't provide too much information, but Data definitely seems to hint that they know what's going on. But... We bust open the door, we go meet Juno, and we get our final boss fight. Basically, Juno has activated a gigantic satellite out in space, which has sent down some sort of, like, bomb or something that is headed towards Catalox Island. If we want to stop the process that is about to kill every living being on Catalox, we need to destroy Juno. As long as he is alive, we can't override him. And he is the game's toughest boss, as you would expect. And he's one of the only bosses in this game that's really all that complex. Almost every boss up to this point has like a completely predictable pattern and like maybe two moves. No, Juno can teleport, he can dive at you, he can jump with explosions and shockwaves, he can fire laser beams one at a time at you, or he can like spin around with laser beams, and he can do all of this randomly. You can't predict what he's about to do. You actually really need to fight him. And he is powerful, too. Some of his attacks can deal up to, like, 40% of your life if you've picked up two out of the three different levels of armor upgrades in this game. He is legit. And even once we beat him, he explodes, but it turns out we didn't actually deal enough damage to stop him because his head's still floating there. And it flies over to the wall and attaches into a socket, and it turns out there was a giant Reaver bot body behind there. So he goes full Sigma on us, and we have to fight Juno in a Reaver bot body. And this one's even harder. Like, big chain explosion attacks, fireballs he throws at you, a giant sliding dash attack, and he's got an attack that even, like, fires a bunch of laser beams into the sky, and then you have to keep running or they will catch you. It's a really impressive boss fight and is like probably the best moment in the game, which is fitting because it's the final boss. It's going to be a legitimate challenge. As we defeat Juno, we leave him basically like power failing on the ground. And he says like, hey, it's too late. Eden's in position. Mother's going to wipe out Catalox Island. Even if I'm dead, you can't stop it. I've made a backup of myself in the core. We'll meet again and I look forward to it. And then he blows up. And as Volnut's panicking, like, what the hell am I going to do? Like, everybody up there is going to die. Data starts talking. 
he literally just comes into the room and identifies himself as Mega Man Trigger and starts issuing orders to this, like, central computer in the room that's like, in my capacity as a purifier, we've determined that Juno was faulty, we request a deletion of Juno's backup data, we request Eden to stop, like, here's the authentication data, and the computer comes back with a message saying, like, okay. And Eden retracts back up into space, and Catalox Island is saved, and Mega Man's like, hey, what the hell was that? Data says, I'm your peripheral memory storage device. You created me, so your memory can't be scanned by Mother. Okay, so first off, basically what he tells us, and he doesn't give us a whole lot of details right now, and I don't know the full details because I haven't played Legends 2, Volnut appears to have deliberately sealed off his own memory inside of Data because somehow his actions can actually be tracked by something called Mother, and it was important to some goal that Volnut not be able to know who he was. Which means our save point has literally been saving our memories this entire time. But also it means that despite the fact that Mega Man kind of looks like he's human enough to be everybody else on the island, his more mechanical parts aren't an accident, he isn't human. Data says that right now, it's not the time for Volnut to actually regain his memories and learn everything. Whatever purpose Data was created for, this is not the time to reveal that information. Still, we've saved the day! We get to go run outside and celebrate, and we get an Earthbound-esque, you can just go walk around town and talk to all the NPCs and say goodbye, and they have a whole bunch of different potential messages for you based on whether you've got a good or bad reputation, or whether you did their side quests or not. Then we jump in the flutter and take off, and Roll's kind of like, hey, what the hell happened down there? And Mega Man's like, oh, don't worry about it, it's nothing. The mystery of the island's solved, and it's time to leave because there's nothing more for us here. We didn't find the mother load. We didn't find Roll's parents. That's that's the thing that gets mentioned like twice in the game, is that apparently Roll is searching for her parents. Roll the credits. After the credits, we do get a stinger cutscene of the Bonds on a ship. Basically, they are completely sunk. They are barely holding it together with the scrap of what they have. But if they can make it to the next island, they found a gigantic refractor in the main gate and did actually get their treasure. And all they have to do is get somewhere they can sell it. Teasel laughs his ass off like a maniac, and that's it. That's the game. Now, is that everything there is to Mega Man Legends? Not quite. First off, I have mentioned it a couple times, there is a bunch of different side quests in this game. Not like an overwhelming number, but there's a few interesting kind of ones. Like going to the TV station and you get various mini-games. There's a museum that you can open up and you can get it stocked with various finds from around the island, which is kind of cool. There's a side quest where you can stop the serve bots from committing a robbery. That one's funny. At the end of it, you get a briefcase full of money and the chief of the police is just like watching you and ready for you to hand it over. You can absolutely just walk away and like take a gate out to another area and leave and keep 200,000 zenny for yourself. It immediately tanks your reputation if you do this, but... The main benefit to taking on the different side quests is that you do get a ton of items that Roll can then refine into various buster parts, including many of the best in the game, as well as a variety of special weapons. There's like about a dozen special weapons in this game. It's very possible to finish this game and only find, like, two, maybe three. The one you get at the start and the Rand Grenade which you need in order to finish the game. All the other ones are tied behind like optional finds in the ruins or in the subgates and or like side quest rewards. And again, most of them aren't that special. There is an ultimate one though, and it's called the Shining Laser. The Shining Laser costs a fortune to upgrade. Literally, you will not get enough Zenny over an entire playthrough to naturally max this thing out. On the flip side, if you do max out its power, it can kill Juno's forms in like 4 or 5 seconds, because it does so much damage, and its final ammo upgrade makes it literally infinite as well. So that's fun. One reward you also get upon finishing the game is you do unlock a hard mode, 
If you finish hard mode, or if you finish the main game in under three hours apparently, there's also an easy mode, and it might sound weird to have easy mode be unlockable, but the main difference is that you start the game with a buster part that maxes out your entire buster stats, and you also get several times the amount of zenny you normally would, so it's basically a hey, go play around and just be completely overpowered mode. Anyway, that about covers it for Legends because I can't really think of any other major topics that I wanted to discuss that I've missed. I've been jumping around a bunch in here, and obviously this wasn't following the traditional format, because this game doesn't follow the traditional format. So let's head up the final thoughts. Objectively speaking, I don't think Mega Man Legends is necessarily a very good game. Its control scheme is absolutely early 3D, which is to say, bad. Its bosses and encounters might be varied, but most of them individually are very, very shallow and not that interesting. Minus Juno, who's an amazing boss fight. This is a Mega Man game that has, frankly, really boring weapons, and creative and interesting weapons are what make the Mega Man games. The special weapon system in this game is a letdown, honestly, and the music is bad. We'll come back to that in like a minute. However, that's me being objective. I don't have to be objective. This is my own damn podcast. If I want to say Mega Man Legends is great, I can say it anyway. Mega Man Legends is great. Yes, it's janky. I have a high tolerance for that early, mid-era 3D jank. And the thing is, is like, the cell shading look works so well for the fact that this is like a Saturday morning anime type plotline that's just so goofy up until the moment where all of a sudden it's very, very serious. It still is actually fairly fun to play around. I actually enjoy, even with their simplicity, I enjoy the dungeons. I enjoy going exploring the runes. I love the way that towards the end of the game, you can get anywhere on the island from anywhere because you can just go underground. The fact that you have an entire game set on one island and they actually went, hey, this isn't just connected on a surface level. This entire thing is built on this gigantic rune that we have no idea how big it is. There's a sense of exploration and wonder there that I don't think many games manage to successfully achieve. Because the game doesn't warn you about this. You just discover all of this naturally. The gameplay is adequate, not amazing, but it's enough to be enjoyable. The cast is so much fun. Yes, the voice acting is hammy at times, and honestly, thumbs up, I love that. It's way better than, like, the X Games trying to take themselves way too goddamn seriously, to be honest. I really enjoy Mega Man Legends. Maybe some people are gonna bounce off of it, and I don't necessarily think they're wrong. This may just be a taste thing. Like I said, objectively, there's a lot of problems with this game, but hell with it, I love Legends. Except the music. I did say we'd come back to that. The music in this game is weak. It doesn't feel at any real point like Mega Man music. It is lacking that identity and energy and sound and everything. And it doesn't really replace it with anything that inspired either. Most of it is like bare minimum first draft JRPG music. A lot of the areas just have silence, which is kind of a wasted opportunity. I mean, underground it kind of makes some sense. A lot of the loops are disappointingly short, and most of the game seems built off a MIDI engine that is just really low impact. To the game's credit, one thing that I don't think any other Mega Man subseries does is have every single boss have its own music. On the flip side, when most of these tracks are completely forgettable in like 25 second loops, who cares? Having said that, there are three tracks I'd like to highlight. The first one is the Cardon Forest Subgate theme. Now, this is a really, really ambient track that, frankly, fits more at home in Capcom's other PlayStation-started series, Resident Evil. But the thing is, is ambient dungeon tracks that are riding on, like, honestly kind of cliché tension notes, that fits being underground in a space nobody's really explored. All the subgates have this almost Metroid-esque feeling of, like, isolation and exploration baked into their music. The subgates become kind of a highlight of the game. These tracks are part of why, and Carden Forest's my favorite.
The second one that I'd like to highlight is actually an event theme from the game, a track that just plays in the background of one of the cutscenes. It's the Bond theme. It's where the Bonds. This track is, like, iconic. This might be the most well-known track in Mega Man Legends, even though it only plays in cutscenes. It's trying to be so serious with, like, the trumpets and these big, like, ensemble brass hits going on, and then it just dips into this kind of goofy, simple, basic melody that just really captures how the bonds can go between, like, honestly being these large-scale boss fights that are conceptually neat and imposing and big and impressive. They can be these threats, and then you are reminded that they're Team Rocket, they're comic relief. final one is one of the few tracks in this game that escapes the legend's problem of not feeling like Mega Man, which is the Flutter versus the Gesellkopf. Listen, I'm not going to try to pronounce that. The first phase of this fight has a track that is just like, it's got a long loop, it goes through a bunch of different melodies, and it is actually like solid. The instrumentation and the sound font being used doesn't do this track justice, because I have heard this track rendered down into the NES sound font, and it is a classic Mega Man track. It even works in parts of Ringman's theme. It just stands out significantly above almost the entire rest of the OST for me. I really like this one. And that does it for Mega Man Legends. We will actually see more of the series in the future. And I'm really looking forward to coming back to it because the other two titles in the series, I've never played. I have no idea what's going to happen, but that'll be a little while away. First, we actually need to head, as mentioned, back to the SNES for its actual last game. We're in 1997 and we're about to play an SNES game. Anyway, that'll be fun. In the meantime... If you've enjoyed, please feel free to drop a message about the podcast to whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com. Please feel free to follow on Twitter at whatamipodcast4, as in the number 4. Stop by waipf.podbean.com if you want an RSS feed or just to catch the latest uploads for direct download. Thanks for listening. I've been Garlisle, and remember, if you can't deliver depth of emotion in your voice acting, ham it up and enjoy it. They just hang out in these runes and beat off intruders? <laughs> Oops.